if you're working on a consumer product and chasing that elusive product market fit, it's very binary. You generally find out very fast. I think you can continue to iterate, but there's always going to be a moment where you will have escape velocity. If you think of any companies that you have admired all the way from Google to Facebook to Snapchat, they just have this escape velocity, which means it resonates really, really well with individuals very fast. Or it's reson resonating with a small amount of people, but it's very engaging, like a Twitch or a Pinterest goes in that bucket. Lukewarm is not enough, and you try to convince yourself that the lukewarm is the right thing, but most often than not, it isn't. Welcome to In-Depth, a show that surfaces tactical advice founders and startup leaders need to grow their teams, companies, and themselves. I'm Brett Burson, a partner at First Round, and we're a venture capital firm that helps startups like Notion, Roblox, Uber, and Square tackle company building firsts. On the In-Depth podcast, we share weekly conversations with startup leaders that skip the talking points and go deeper into not just what to do, but how to do it. Learn more and subscribe today at firstround.com. Hi, everyone, and welcome to In-Depth. I'm Todd Jackson, and I'm a partner here at First Round, and I'm guest hosting a few episodes this season all about finding product market fit. Today's episode is with Deepak Rao, co-founder and CEO of X1, a consumer fintech startup that's building a credit card for a new generation. Their unique model allows them to offer higher credit limits and amazing rewards with no annual fee, all in a really cool 17-gram stainless steel credit card. Before joining X1, Deepak spent several years as a product leader at Twitter, which is where I met him. I've always been impressed with his approach to product, his ability to explain and unpack what makes a great product, and how he has a knack for building things people want. Just last week, X1 announced a $15 million funding round, so we're catching Deepak at an interesting inflection point. After not raising at all in 2021, X1 is doing about $3 million a month in revenue, and seeing $60 million in spend from their customers. With 36 employees and only organic growth, it's really impressive. But as always, I'm curious to rewind the clock. As you'll hear in today's conversation, Deepak's path required a dramatic pivot during the pandemic. We retraced that journey, starting off with the vision for the initial personal loan product, Thrive Cash. While it showed promising signs, it experienced a steep drop-off as college campuses shut down during COVID. In addition to sharing how they worked to extend runway and correct the two major flaws in the original business, Deepak walks us through the emotional journey of abandoning his original idea. He also tells the story of how they approached validating demand for the new idea in a really interesting way, focusing on the launch announcement and getting all of the branding exactly right before building anything. Deepak shares tons of interesting details here, from how they came up with the name of the company to the level of thought that went into the card design and messaging. The response to that launch in September 2020 was tremendous, with a thousand people per minute signing up for the waitlist and crashing the website. So I think there's a lot for founders to learn from here. Deepak also shares some great advice on how finding product market fit differs for consumer companies, as well as thoughts on how to approach fundraising. I hope you enjoy the interview and X1's story. And now, Onto my conversation with Deepak. Welcome to the show, Deepak. Thank you for having me. X1 has done extraordinarily well since the launch in 2021. I know people love the credit card. You're processing something like 60 million or more in transactions every month, which is just very impressive. 
But your journey to get here, I know, has had a lot of twists and turns. And you did this pretty intense pivot at the peak of the pandemic, all these unexpected challenges around actually creating the card. And it wasn't a straightforward path to product market fit. So I'd love to retrace this journey with you and dig a bit deeper into some of those critical moments. And so to kick things off, let's rewind to 2018 when you initially launched as Thrive Cash. What was Thrive Cash and who was it for? Yeah, that's a great question. And thank you again for having me. In terms of we started the company in early 2018. That was where the foundation for the company and the X1 card also happened. But the company was started as a completely different product. The company was started as Thrive Cash. The first product, and that was the only product that we were working on, was an unsecured personal loan that was catered towards college students. We were primarily targeting upperclassmen and graduate students. And the way the product worked was very unique and no one else was doing it. Still to this date, no one else does it. We were basically underwriting students through an offer letter for an upcoming internship or a full-time job. So imagine you're an upperclassman and you're about to graduate and you have an internship or like a full-time job lined up right after graduation. So we would give you an unsecured loan, which would match the timing of your internship or your full-time job. You can get access to the funds when you're in college. You don't have to pay us a single cent until you have graduated. And then as you start getting paid from that internship or full-time job, you could pay us back. So that was the crux behind the idea. We wanted to go as early as possible in someone's financial journey and then try and capture that audience. I think it was doing pretty well initially, right? You were at several schools and underwriting successfully a lot of college students. Yeah, I think so. The first time we started the product in, I think, in spring of 2018, and we primarily launched the product at NYU in Columbia. And I think within the first six months, we were able to originate about a million dollars of loan primarily at those two colleges. It was all organic, all done through word of mouth. So that gave us enough validation that, okay, there is a huge market out there. And in the next school year, we started expanding to more and more schools across the East Coast, primarily like New York, Massachusetts, and then made our way towards West Coast as well. And I think at the peak, right before COVID, we're doing about $25 million like school year. Wow. What do you think made it so popular? Just a little bit about myself. I am a product person. I come from a product background and we're not traditional financial services folks. We don't have banking or financial services background. So we wanted to create a product which was more consumer friendly, extremely transparent and really like fast and sleek, just where if you want access to capital, you open an app. Within like a couple minutes, you would go through the entire flow end to end. And then the next business day, you will have thousands of dollars in your bank account. No one was doing that, and especially for a college student. If you imagine going back when you were like 21, 22, there was literally no access to that amount of capital that fast. So I think that was like a huge factor for us. And you didn't have to go to a bank. You didn't have to do complicated like driver's license or face IDs and things of that sort. It was just very, very simple. You log in, you go through a few easy flows from your putting your SSN to your phone number, sending us an offer letter. Within five minutes, you get approved for a line of credit. You can rely on that line of credit as and when you want funds. We would just send you the funds the next day. I get it. Yeah, sounds like a great product. Okay, so you're growing, you're expanding 2018, 2019, and then 2020, COVID hits. What happened? So it was very interesting. Right up until, I think if I remember about February of 2020, the business was growing really, really rapidly. I think we were almost doubling month over month. We were on track to do about $25 million in loan origination across, I think, just 40 or 50 colleges at that time. And then I think the first set of shutdowns started happening. And if you remember that time, it was no one knew exactly what was going on. I think SF, I remember, shut down in the first week of March. And there was time where overnight our demand completely evaporated. 
there was not a single consumer who wanted to get access to fun, just take a loan. They were completely went away. Because they weren't traveling or they didn't need the money. Yeah, exactly. I think so. It took us a while to understand what was exactly happening. Why was the sudden change? So I think few things happened at that time. If you remember, first thing was, I think immediately the campuses were shut down and people had to go either leave the campuses most often had to leave the campuses. So our entire marketing strategy, our entire word of mouth was built on like campus where people would talk to each other. So that completely evaporated and no one was doing that. And then the two biggest use cases of our product were one was travel and second relocation. Travel completely shut down because no one knew what was going on. And then relocation, companies had to adapt really, really rapidly, including ourselves. Everyone had to go remote. For first, if you had to start an internship, you might have to move cross country and then put a deposit on rent for an apartment. Or you might need like money to buy your flights or buy laptops and so on and so forth. All went away, completely went away. You could now just start an internship from your parents' apartment or from your dorm. You can actually start your job in your pajamas, sitting wherever you want. So it completely changed the equation. And that was the biggest hit to the business. It wasn't that people weren't able to pay you back because the economy was so bad. That's what we had anticipated might happen when there is minor recession. It was a minor blip in the GDP during that quarter, but that was not what affected us. Our demand completely evaporated overnight. It was the demand. Yeah. Okay. Wow. So that, I mean, it sounds like it happened almost overnight or at least over some period of days or weeks. So what did you do inside the company? When did you start to say, hey, we've got to do something different here? That was the most challenging time for the business because there was so much uncertainty and there was no precedence for something like this because we just did not know how long would it take. And if you remember the videos at that time, people were talking about U-shaped recoveries, L-shaped recoveries, like V-shaped recoveries. We like just did not know how to maneuver the business waiting for it till I come back. So I think we basically decided to give it a week or two to see if the campuses would shut down. And I think every week it actually got more and more intense. The only the first the colleges like I think in California were closed and like I think the Ivy Leagues closed and even in like the universities in Texas were shut down in the end. So there was literally like nowhere for us to go and market the product. And I think that was a good realization at that point. All businesses have some flaws at the end of the day. And while you're working on a startup, you have some duration to start and fix those flaws. I think in our case, the two flaws of the business were one was seasonality and second, it wasn't a daily engagement product because people were still buying things. People were still going to grocery stores. They were still buying workout equipment, but they were just not going traveling or relocation and they were still living their lives. So I think that accelerated the biggest flaw of the business, which was it was extremely seasonal, uh, seasonal and it was very oriented towards a certain use case. So I think that took a while to realize. And I think it's an emotional journey at the end of the day. You're in it. You don't want to let go of something that was working really, really well that you just raised money for because it was working so well. And then just overnight it stopped working. So you try to kind of hold on to it. I think we did a good job, I would say, within a couple of months, we pivoted the entire business, changed the company, did a lot of things, and I can go deeper into all of those. Yeah, yeah. Well, so, okay, you mentioned you had raised money already. When COVID struck, how much money was in the bank and how many employees did you have? Yeah, I think so. At that point, given the growth was so great, we had about, I think, around 16 to 18 employees at that time. And we had about $3 million in the bank at that point. Okay, so this was after your seed round, but before your Series A? Yeah, yeah, before the A round. Yeah, we still had about $3 million in the bank at that point, but our burn rate was really high. We were burning about $250,000 every month. So 
Because the business was going in this one particular direction where we knew, okay, now we're going to go from 50 colleges to 250 colleges and go raise money for the next round. But then you had to course correct like dramatically. So what we had to do, we had to take some just hard steps. We had to let go of some people, but we wanted to keep as many good folks as possible. And they had been with us from day one. So we offered everyone in the company an ability to get more equity in the company if they would lower their salaries. We had 100% participation rate for that. Every single employee, in whatever they could afford from like going lower in salary, some people went like crazy down in order to get more equity in the company. And we were able to reduce our burn rate from, I think, $250,000 to about $100,000, $120,000, more than half over the next couple of months, which gave us at least 12 months of runway to be able to figure out what to do next. Interesting. And you did this when you had $3 million in the bank still. It's kind of like what a lot of founders, I think, are thinking about today, acting very early to try to extend that runway sort of as early as you can is what you guys did. Absolutely. And I would get credit for all of this to David Sachs. I think he was extremely, extremely influential in all of this. I think he was pushing really aggressively. He was like, you have to cut fast. You have to cut really, really deep. And we were hesitant. So it's one of those things where you're emotional and you want to make sure you're assuming that oh, things will work out. Maybe the school year will start in the next few months. But I think in hindsight, he was obviously right. He was like, you have to go very, very deep. You need to give yourself the most amount of time to be able to recover from this because who knows how long this would last and who knows how long it would impact the business at like a longer term horizon. So he, I give him credit for all of it. I think he was very, very helpful throughout this process. And then I think we just completely cut our expenses, went in this like, development mode because we didn't know what we would do next because the business as we had built it to that day it did not exist basically overnight yeah so it's this incredibly intense it sounds like about two month period where the first thing you had to do was sort of like let go of the old idea your attachment to that and then you figured out how we cut costs and then what did the beginning of the pivot start to look like how did you figure out what you were going to do so one of the things that I mentioned early on, I think the two key flaws of old business was it was not a daily engagement product. You couldn't use it daily. At the end of the day, it's a loan. You could maybe take it once a school year, maybe twice if you're using it like a line of credit. But we wanted to create something which you could use daily. And the second aspect was we had a huge seasonality element. In order to use the first product, you need to A, have an internship or a full-time job. Then you needed to have a need for a capital if you were relocating or if you were traveling. So it was very seasonal. A spring quarter was huge for us because people were on the like uh, last set of funds that they might have saved from either previous shops or just like their like savings or like from their parents. And there was a huge demand for cash and spring quarter was huge for us. But the fall wasn't that big. So we wanted to fix those two things. And I think one of the things as you now go back in, I think it was May and June when things were starting to open up slowly, you were still going to restaurants and getting takeout and then going to grocery stores. So people were still spending money every day. I was still using my credit card every single day to buy something or the other. It's just the category of purchases completely changed. Instead of travel, you're ordering dumbbells or pelotons or like workout equipments. You are ordering a lot of takeout. People were not going to movies. So the category of spend changed, but the spend did not change. I think that was like one of the things which stuck with us where we said we have all this infrastructure to like be able to underwrite consumers really, really well. But there needs to be an instrument that they could use on a day to day basis, which is not a personal loan. I think that was the first insight into moving towards a credit card. And we always knew that we would need something when the consumer graduates to build a relationship with them. We just decided to accelerate that. So that's how the credit card started to like shape up, basically. 
Okay, got it. And so then I imagine building a credit card was a brand new thing for you. How did you start to figure that out, how that would actually work? Yeah, it was totally brand new because I think the only thing that we could have taken on from the previous business was just the underwriting ability, but everything else was completely brand new. And there haven't been that many credit cards, at least startup credit cards that have been successful or actually even out there in the market. So the sample size to go rely on was really, really small. So I think the next few months was a huge amount of partnership research, talking to companies like Stripe and Marketa to see if they would be able to help us build these programs. And then just figuring out, like, how do you even go build a credit card from scratch? Because if you notice until I think even today, almost all like neobanks in the country are heavily debit card led. Uh, the two largest neobanks in the country are Chime and Cash App. They don't even have a credit card. They're primarily debit cards. So all the infrastructure was built around debit cards and no one was building credit cards. I think it's extremely complicated to build a credit card, and it took us a while to realize that. There are a few reasons. First, when you spend money on a debit card, it's actually your own money. You are literally using the money in your deposit account to buy or make a purchase, so it is not as regulated as a credit card. Because credit card, every single purchase, even though someone like you and I pay it off in full at the end of the month, it is technically still a loan because you have the ability to not pay it off in full at the end of the month. So the regulations were very, very intense. So you had to figure out how to build the product around those regulations. The second is the capital constraints. Now, keep in mind, our bank balance was going down rapidly. We had like two, two and a half million dollars at this point. But to build a credit card, every time you swipe your credit card, it's not your own money. It's someone else's money that you are using until you pay them back. So you had to float all this money for like 30 days minimum and then could be like years maximum if someone decides to carry a balance. So the capital and back in peak COVID where people didn't know if the debt markets would survive and how would they behave, you didn't know how you would get access to debt capital. And I think the third and the most important one in the end was there wasn't access to a processor which you can rely on to build the rails of the credit card on. So companies like Stripe and Marketa, they do not support consumer credit cards. Actually, all cards out there from Chime to Square and stuff, they use Marketa or Stripe in some shape and form, but neither of those companies offer a consumer credit card. Okay, got it. So basically, like you're finding how difficult it is to create a new credit card. What was giving you the confidence that like this was a good thing to do? Like you mentioned that you wanted to kind of get away from some of the seasonality and other things that were impacting Thrive, problems that you wanted to solve in the business. But how did you know that consumers actually like wanted a new credit card or there was space for a new credit card? This was where we got very, very lucky. We had underwritten uh, thousands of college students based on like a personal loan product. So we had access to their credit reports and we used to monitor their credit reports as a part of just underwriting on a monthly cadence. And a lot of our first or the second batch of the students that we had underwritten, they had graduated. Almost always about like, I would say 100% of the times within like uh, the first six months of graduation, people would apply for a credit card. And you could just see that they were getting inquiries for a credit card and a lot of people were actually getting rejected. That was like a key insight where we saw where a lot of people tried to get your Amex or like Chase Sapphire card. And a lot of them, they wouldn't get access to those cards. Oh, so you saw what you thought were credit worthy people getting rejected. Yes, exactly. These were folks who had jobs at Google. These were folks who had a job at Goldman Sachs and they would apply for an American Express card right after graduation or during like that time and they would get rejected. So they all had to take these like very low tier cards with really small limits. 
we actually saw the limits of the cards that they were getting approved for. And those limits were actually lower than the loan that we had given. So we knew there was like a huge opportunity there where if you're graduating from any college and you have a job in consulting, banking, tech, education, whatever earnings you're making, they did not have access to those earnings to be able to underwrite your profile and they would give you a credit card with a limit of $1,000, $3,000, where we could have given them a loan of up to $10,000, even like $15,000 in some cases. So we knew there was a huge mismatch. We remember talking to this one individual. He was at UT Austin. He got a credit limit of $1,500 and he was a software engineer who wanted to buy a laptop. He couldn't buy a Mac on his credit card because the new Mac with, you know, like the core process there about like 1800 bucks, he, he couldn't do it on his credit card. This was a person who had a job at Google who was getting paid an engineering salary, but the credit limit wasn't enough for them to be able to buy a laptop even. So I think those were some of the things where we started looking at the data and then talking to the existing customer base. We knew that, okay, there's a huge opportunity here. What were people saying? Because it sounds like you saw a lot of signal in the data. Like these people are applying for credit cards. They're either getting rejected or low limits because, uh, you know, the insight is like you should underwrite these people on their future income rather than whatever credit history they have. And so the data was telling you that, but then did you start to actually talk to users and hear the stories yourself? Yeah, I think so. We did a lot of research. So again, I think some of the things that benefited us where we had this access to this huge customer base from the existing business, which was still a relevant customer base for us. And we used to run a lot of surveys and we had access to this entire college directory. If you remember at that point, people didn't have much to do. They were not going out or like doing much. So you would send out surveys and people would fill out surveys on like, how are they deciding the next credit card? And the themes were very, very common. I think the, apart from the obvious things like rewards and like no annual fee and so on and so forth, the two key things that almost every person wanted was either high limits and like making sure the card was extremely transparent. It was like unanimous. Every survey we ran, Apart from points and no exorbitant fees, which was just a given at that point, the two things that they cared about were limits and credit card that was extremely transparent. Transparent in terms of fees? Yeah, in terms of just fees and like interest, it's not predatory. You can like access your information online. They are not like trying to charge you late fees behind the scenes and so on and so forth. So everyone has heard some stories which have negative connotations attached to it. So they just wanted to make sure that they are like uh, working with an instrument that they can truly trust. Okay, that makes sense. So uh, how many surveys did you run? I would say we had data for thousands of college students at that point, thousands of college students, and then did a lot of qualitative research as well. Almost every day used to talk to like dozens of uh, college students, upperclassmen, even people who had graduated and had these jobs who did not have a good credit card. Even then they were working at Google, had these like incredible jobs, but had like a really bad credit card. So that basically gave you motivation. And that kind of kept you going, even against like all the odds where no one had built a credit card. None of the companies that you admire, Stripe, are supporting a credit card. We did not have capital. It was heavily regulated and it would have taken at least 18 months to get it out and running. But I think maybe that was just like a little bit of naivety. I don't know what it was, but somehow you just like knew that, okay, whatever we are seeing, there's a unique insight here and we should just keep on following through. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like you had discovered, gosh, this is going to be really hard to do, but we've got a ton of conviction that it's a good idea based on the data that we're seeing in the surveys and talking to people. At one point, we were just like, we know it's hard, but we just have to do this. When was that moment of sort of conviction for you? That was sometime in, I would say, May and June. We knew we have to do it. We knew if the business has to survive, we need to build a new product. We didn't have any better ideas. We didn't have any more insights. We knew that this is it uh, and we have to figure out a way to do it. So... 
I think around that time, even though we had paused originating from Thrivecash sometime in March or April, but I think this two months of like slow rollout, slow just like letting go of the older company, it still took a little bit longer. But I think by around June, every single person in the company was only working on one thing, which was the credit card, the older product completely. Oh, wow. Okay. So yeah, it's like you were very decisive, almost because you had no choice, right? Like this is the path forward or we're going to shut down almost. Basically. Yeah. I think, yeah, it was that close for us. So now we're sort of in like the second half of 2020, sounds like. Take us through that time period. Yeah. So it was extremely challenging because in order to build a credit card, you need to go partner with the issuing bank because in the United States, you cannot issue a credit or a debit product unless an issuing bank is going to be a sponsor for that. And we just did not have enough money for them to feel comfortable partnering with us. We went and to, I would say, dozens of banks out there to see if anyone would partner with us. We had no leverage. No one gave us a term sheet because they said, you don't even have a couple million dollars. It's a heavily capital-intensive business. Even the covenants that they had, like that you need runway for 24 months and so on and so forth, we could not meet any of those. So that was the critical piece, and you cannot do it without the bank. So I think at that point, we made a decision that we will do everything else without the bank, and we'll figure out the bank later. So we started working on the design of the card, how it would look, how it would feel. And we started working on a processor. So we ended up working with this company called Fiserv. They're a public company based in Nebraska at this point. And they are our processor for the card. They work with the likes of SoFi, City, even Capital One. And that was the company we picked. We did a deal with Visa. So we did everything around the bank. And even though bank is the most critical piece of it, but we were like, we have to start making some progress to be able to see if this is like, to have to like parallel path. So what was the plan? Like, hey, we'll try to build everything around the credit card except the critical issuing bank. And we will what? We will get interest for that credit card and then we'll raise funding and then we'll be able to go to the issuing bank. Or what was your plan? Yeah, I think that was it. Basically, we were like, okay, we don't know if this is going to work or not. We need demand. We need validation. So we were like, okay, let's get the card like ready. Let's see what is possible to build in this card. How do you write a product brief? You get all that information and then you just announce the card without having anything built and then see if people want it or not. That was very... I don't think anyone, like most don't people don't do that. We literally had nothing at the time when we announced the card because we knew that, okay, if we had to build this best product out there, let's conceptualize it, at least design it and see how it looks and feels. Get the branding right, get the messaging right, get the product spec right with literally no base behind it, like without building any of it, and then just announce it. And if it works out, then we have leverage. Then we can go to banks and be like, okay, there is demand for this product. Or we could go raise more money. So I think that's the strategy. I think we were kind of forced into that strategy because that was the only way out. Okay, so let's talk about all the like kind of major things then leading up to this announcement. When was the announcement? The announcement happened on September 17th, 2020. Okay, so pretty fast. Yeah, it was, I think, within like a couple of months, basically. We had to decide on a name. We had to decide on the look and feel of the car. Yeah. How did you how did you come up with the name X1? It was very challenging. The name Thrive Cash just like didn't feel like a good name for a credit card. And I think as one of the things we learned during the pivot process, as we were doing more and more reading and just, you have to let go. That's the hardest part. I think the more you like hang on to the older thing, the basically higher your odds of failure are. You just have to let go. 
I remember like reading a lot of things about Stuart Butterfield and how he, because I think he has done two of the most successful pivots out there. So very famous ones. And David Sachs had did one with Yammer. I think they started as Genie and they ended up doing Yammer. So I think the common thing for any success was you just have to let go. So we decided, okay, we got to like just let go of Thrive Cash. We cannot use this name. We'll just like start from scratch. We'll come up with a new name, a new identity. And the naming is really hard. So if you follow the industry or if you search for any credit card like series out there or any name that you can come up with, people have like taken those. If you want to come up with colors, because all cards are a series of cards. So if you can come up with colors, tones, mountain peaks, like anything you can think of, everything's taken, everything end to end. So there was literally, that's all credit card companies do. They just have a bunch of marketers who just come up with new, unique names. So almost nothing was available. So we had to have like an empty slate. We had to come up with something which did not mean anything because then we could brand it and fill it however we wanted to. If you read the Nike book, I think it's called Shoe Dog, where they talk about the like key characters to use when you're naming companies. And I think when he was coming up with Nike, I think there were three characters. There was one, I think it was K. X, because like Clorox had that brand, like Nike, and there are some of these characters that are just much more memorable and make your brand more like recognizable, especially from a consumer product standpoint. So we started like uh, thinking about, okay, what kind of characters can we use which don't mean much, which are like strong, like an X or a K. And then we also decided to see if we could have a series of cards, because we eventually want to build more cards for people, which could easily like translate into a series. So the first iteration of the card name we came up with was number one. We were like, oh, it's really unique. <laughs> no one was going to call their company number one. Uh, it was the dumbest idea out there I, because every time we would tell anyone that we were building one, they would like, oh, is it O-N-E one or is it number one? And it was just like, oh, that's not going to work out because how would you tell your employees where you work? How would they tell their parents where they work? Huh? So that was like very quickly, like I gave up on it. We like the character X and I think it's like extremely strong as like a word and a lot of like iconic companies like SpaceX, Clorox and all these other companies use that. Yeah, as you were saying that, I was thinking, gosh, it's like Xerox, Kleenex, Brex, like there's so many X names. Yes, exactly. And I think so we were like, oh, let's just go with X. And then we ended up realizing after the fact that Elon Musk owns X.com and we we're like, okay, if that's one like person, you don't want to like build a name around that. We actually even tried to see if he could buy the domain. And it was the dumbest thing ever. We asked David to see if he could like introduce us to Elon to see if he'd be willing to either invest and give us the domain. Because if you read their like original thesis around x.com, it was very similar. They wanted to change financial services and he wanted to do it through a bank. So like, oh, maybe he'd be open to doing that. Thank God we like didn't go with that name, obviously. Then we were kind of stuck. And then I think we just were iterating around and we just came up with, why don't we just combine X and one and just call it X one. That was it. That's how it like came in. And it might just seem like obvious in hindsight, but it, this was like a lot of like uh, iterations and a lot of searching for inspiration to come up with a name. And X one kind of stuck. There was clean SEO around X one. No one owned an X one company. We actually were able to get X one Inc straight up without like any technologies or anything you literally were able to register for x1 inc so we looked at okay can we get the legal name can we get a domain x1.co was available so all these things started to go in that direction and then we were like oh if we want to create a series of cards we could call it x1 x12 x x3 or x1a x1b there's so many permutations that open up and then one of our employees told us that I think Bell X1 was the first rocket aircraft exceeded the sound barrier. So there was like this amazing like positive connotation attached to the name as well. 
So we were like, okay, we're just going to go with X1. Because the name was very, very important because the name had to be printed on the cards. And the cards are metal cards. And the cards take at least a few months to produce. So the name was, the, I would say, the limiting factor. You had to, had to get the name right because you cannot like do any of the other branding because it's a physical product. So we actually did this naming exercise in a compressed two-week window. We had to come out of it with a name and a domain and everything. And we just came out with X1. Wow. Okay. So now we've got the name. And then what about like the look and feel of the card? You said it was metal. How did you do the design? All the credit goes to the founding designer. We found him right after he graduated from Stanford. He was this like 22-year-old kid, one of the most talented people I've ever worked with. And he had this eye of trying to just stand out. So he designed our logo. It's the same logo still this date. And the card comes in a box. He actually was the one who pushed to get a box. He didn't want the card to show up in an envelope. He was like, oh, we have to stand out. So he was the one who was like, okay, I can do something cool. And he had no background in like industrial design, no background in actually even traditional design. He studied philosophy and was a designer by like his hobby. And he came up with it. He came up with the look and feel of the card. He came up with the packaging of the card. And that has still like endured. It's been two years since then. Everyone loves it. Some of the things that we wanted to emphasize while designing it was we wanted it to be very memorable and something you could take a photo of. So if you look at our card today, you will notice that there is no primary details in the front of the card. It just says X1 and Visa Signature because all the name and the number of the card is at the back of the card. Oh, and you did that intentionally so that people could take photos of the front of the card? Yes, because we wanted to go viral on social. We wanted people to take videos of unboxing. And we were like, oh, they won't be able to do it if you put any like information, like any PII at the front of the card. So the PII had to be at the back of the card. And we also made it vertical because we wanted to stand out. So it shows up in a vertical box. You do an unboxing and you can literally see the card. Oh, that's really clever. So you unbox it. The card's vertical. It just says X1 card on the front. There's no personal information. And so people were taking photos of that and posting it like on Instagram? Yes, absolutely. Even to this date, if you go to Instagram, TikTok, YouTube, you'll see dozens and dozens of videos of people like uh, taking photos of the card and they're unboxing the card. Even on Twitter, like almost everyone does it. They take a photo of it and either they send it to a friend or like they post it on social. So that was something, again, coming back to like the product DNA of the company, we wanted to make sure that we at least relied on these intuitions that we had like learned from past lives that you have to create something which is more memorable and is more shareable. So that was something which was at least thought through and made sure. And two years fast forward still like uh, continues to work. Yeah. Do you think those things are, you know, obviously the visual appearance of the card and being shareable on social, but what about like the feel of it, the weight, the material? Is that stuff important to people? It's absolutely very important. Most people, I think, if in like our network will have either an Amex Platinum or an Amex Insurance card, they also have a heavier metal associated with it. And then we did a lot of reading and research around what motivates people and is weight a status of symbol and like premiumness. So we found out that the first Beats headphone that were created, they actually put additional weights on the sides of the headphones so they'd seem heavier, even though they're not that heavy. And to this date, they do that. So it's one of those things where you associate it with being premium, just more durable and like more prestigious. So we wanted to go with like a metal card, which makes a sound when it, you hit it on like a dinner table. It's not just a plastic card. It truly, truly stands out. So that was some of the motivation behind going with the metal card. Okay, cool. So now I feel like we got the name, we got the design. Are you ready to like announce now or what were the final steps leading up to the announcement? 
I think so. The final steps leading up to the announcement, like, okay, what are the product specs? Is it a no annual fee credit card? What are the reward structures? How would it differentiate? What is the tagline? So I think we had to figure all those out in parallel while aligning on like an announcement date. So we did two things. We had like a little bit of money. So we were able to get a PR firm on like a couple month contract and we set up an embargo date with them. And that date ended up being September 17th. I think this was mid-August. And my co-founder and I were working with the designer to just like get the perfect landing page out there. We have no data, literally no way to know if this will all work out. And you have to write this product brief in the live on a website with literally no understanding of whether this will even be possible, whether you could do it in the end or not. So I think we had to take this huge leap of faith and we were like, okay, we're going to write the perfect product brief from first principles. If we had to build the perfect credit card, how would that look like? How would that behave? And how does it need to be jaw-dropping? Because I think that's one thing we learned, and I've learned that from you as well, where most consumer products have to be jaw-dropping. Otherwise, if they're just lukewarm, they will never like work out. So everything about it has to be jaw-dropping. It had to be an incredibly amazing landing page where you go there for the first time. You either hate it or you love it, but you will 100% talk about it. So I think that's the kind of emotions that we were trying to get out of individuals. If you actually go to our website, you will notice at the very bottom, there's this section where you can play the sound that the card makes when it hits the table. Uh, the clanking sound of a metal card? Yeah, the, the clanking sound. of the, So we put all this effort into it because we thought, okay, this is the perfect way to stand out. And we had to come up with the tagline. We didn't want to go with anything traditional. And we wanted to go with something that shows people that it's built by a technology company. So we landed at the smartest credit card ever made. These were very bold statements, so it could be like a little bit hyperbole, but we said we're going to like own it, we're going to design the perfect product, and we'll just see if it like resonates with individuals or not. And then before you went live, so you went live on September 17th, you said, 2020? Yes. Before you went live, did you, because you said you, you, we want to make this jaw-dropping, and I'm always a big proponent of like getting user feedback with a small number of users and seeing like, is this jaw-dropping or not, or did you just go for it? Yeah, I think so. We were doing some usability testing. And I think the first version of the product from like a economic standpoint used to have a $95 annual fee. And that was a little bit lukewarm. That was the only part that people were hesitant about because it was a new product. It will have higher switching costs if you like commit to a $95 fee from the get go. And I think that was the only part which we weren't fully, fully sold by. And then we also used to ask like the team internally, would you drop your American Express and go to this card? And there was some hesitation and, you know, people try to be very polite when they're giving you feedback. So I think that was the last thing where a week before the announcement, we actually changed the structure and made it a no annual fee card. Just one week before the announcement with no data, we knew that this was not jaw dropping. And if you remove the annual fee, it will become jaw dropping. And this happened a week before it. So our PR firm had to go back to all the journalists and they had to change <laughs> the like, you know, spec of the actual product itself. But I think internally we knew, and like, I think you have to trust your instinct and like that during these like uh, phases as well. We knew that, okay, this will be it. People would like uh, end up using it. And then this amazing thing happened. Two days before the announcement was about to come out on September 17th, there was a Reddit thread on the card. This person wrote a Reddit thread saying that, hey, I came across this card called X1. Is this real? Oh, because you had the site was already up. You just hadn't announced it. The site was already up. Yeah. The site was that we had the site up a couple of days ago and someone found it. And we were constantly iterating on the site at the same time as well. 
And my general like impression with Reddit is like people are very, very opinionated. They will either like really like you or they really hate you. So from the thread that we saw, it was very, very well debated. It people were in two camps. They were either really liking it or really hating it. And they were kind of going after each other of how this could be like cool, how this underwriting could be really cool because they're looking at income because we had learned all that from the previous product. How this branding is good. How are they offering this for no annual fees? This just seems like insane. So I think at that moment, I personally knew that, okay, this will work out, but I could never tell it to anyone in the team because you don't want to overpromise because you have no data. And I think some of the people are like, oh, these guys are going to run out of money. They just don't know how hard it's going to be. No one can like build this, like what they're trying to offer. So like, oh, that's the kind of sentiment that we're like uh, hitting basically. So I think that was the thing that at least gave me confidence at that point that, okay, we'll be fine. Like some people would li- like this. The announcement would go well. But then the announcement went like to a level that we could have never anticipated. Couldn't even dreamt if you even asked me like a day before what would be like the most number of people I could, we would like call it a success. Wait, so what actually happened on like the morning of September 17th? The press article went live, but now there was traffic to the website. So basically some of it was like crafted. We wanted to do as much like buzz and awareness around the product at that moment. So so we picked the date September 17th. We put together a wait list in order to get to the, you had to like just sign up for a wait list. And September 17th at six in the morning, TechCrunch came out with an article. They were the first article that came out about the card. And by noon that day, there were a thousand people per second who were trying to sign up for the wait list. Our website crashed. We had done all this <laughs> stress testing. We had not anticipated, obviously, these amount of people. And We also did a few more things which kind of worked in our favor where we have really good group of investors who have really large Twitter following. So we did like a tweet storm from the card from like the official account and had everyone quote tweet that just so they could like see the features. And the tweet storm was also, it really stood out because it had the same video of the card dropping and making a sound, which people did not know why we were doing that, but it led to a lot of debate. And then a bunch of our investors, I think, including you also tweeted about it throughout like the day. And it just like went viral. It started trending on Twitter. Mark Andreessen followed me. Chamath Palipatia tweeted about it. I've never met those folks. And suddenly just like the flywheel kind of like moving. I got all these friends from like high school and like college texting me about it. It was just incredible. Like by the end of the first week, we had more than 200,000 people on the wait list. And it was just absolutely insane. Deepak, what do you think? It it sounds to me like it was the combination of a really cool, well-designed, like great looking card, a high limit, awesome rewards, like smartest card ever ever made and like no annual fee. And it was like sort of like the combination of those things that made it jaw dropping. Yeah, absolutely. You could cancel subscription payments in a click of a button. You could actually spend anonymously at a merchant if you want to. And we did not know how we would do it yet, uh, but we. And you hadn't built any of these things. No, no, we just figured out. I think so that all credit goes to my co-founder. He just figures out how to do these things. We just made all these bold promises. And to this date, everything that was posted on the website, we actually delivered almost all of it. So didn't have to take anything back. You can actually spend anonymously using our card. You can cancel subscription payments in a single click of a button. You can give cards to your spouse, your significant other, to your parents, to kids. Like you can do anything that we just like had conceptualized. Back in 2020, we ended up building all of it. So then let's talk about the weeks and months kind of following this like epic announcement, where now it's like you've got all this demand, you know, it's demonstrated. Now you've got to build this thing, ship this thing. How did that work? Oh, and at this point, we still don't have the issuing bank, right? 
we still don't have the issuing bank no we still don't have the issuing bank so when the announcement uh, went out the journalists always were asking us like oh who's the issuing bank <laughs> and we did not have the name behind it so we told them we're going to disclose it at a future date i think at that point the demand of the waitlist and the card was incredible if you i think if you compare it to robinhood robinhood had about 50000 signups to their product in the first week we had about 200000 So that was the biggest signal for us and we felt that this was enough for us to go actually raise a proper series A so we have enough capital to be able to go back to the banks and then like show them that okay we have the funding to be able to go through like the next few years. So I think that was the first thing we did. I think we asked the card on September 17th. Next week we started fundraising. We closed the round in October 15th, 12 million dollar series A and Then we started shopping the issuing banks around. I think we got about eight term sheets now with the new demand. Oh wow! So what a difference! So it was the combination of this like really you know amazing launch plus the Series A funding, and now all of a sudden they want to partner with you. Yeah, immediately it all changed. I think they gave us incredibly generous terms. One of the banks also gave us a facility to be able to fund the receivables, so we don't have to use our own capital, which is why we can support sixty million dollars of spend by only raising twelve million dollars. So that was the key moment, I think, where. It's one of those things and I think it just took like longer to realize at the end of the day market wins I think you can do everything you can like say whatever but if you have demand and if customers are using it everyone like I think everything kind of falls into place from there onwards so just from like September 17th to like October 15th we had funds in the bank we had like a term sheet with the bank signed before the end of the year we had the first card to like the employees done by March May, my younger brother, he was the first external card holder who got the card. And in October, we just started giving it out to the waitlist. So it just like I think the flywheel started moving from there onwards. But it was incredibly hard. I would say would have not anticipated that it would work out this well. But yeah, it, it was one of the hardest things I think we had to ever go through because you had to let go of the product that got you to that stage. You had to let go of the people, and all that was just incredibly hard for us to do. If you could boil this down, Deepak, into like. a couple pieces of advice for founders today who are kind of on this journey to product market fit you know the the winding path to product market fit what would some of those be just based on your learning i think one on the consumer product side uh, i can give feedback on the consumer product side cuz i'm not an enterprise or a saas person but i think on consumer product market fit it's maybe 20 times like 50 times harder than like would say an enterprise product market fit it's extremely elusive and you generally like find out very fast I think you can continue to iterate but there's always going to be a moment where you will have escape velocity if you think of any companies that you have admired all the way from Google to Facebook to Snapchat any consumer companies I think they they just have this escape velocity really fast which means it resonates really really well with individuals very fast or it's res- resonating with like a small amount of people but it's very 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 engaging like a Twitch or a Pinterest goes in that bucket so you have to look for signals that are not lukewarm I think that was the other thing and I think the first product now in hindsight we used to think was very successful we were doing about 25 million dollars in a year in terms of loans we now do over 60 million dollars in spend every month so the sheer amount of scale was completely different so I would say that's the first thing if you're working on a consumer product and chasing that elusive product market fit lukewarm is not enough it's very binary for any signals that I have like seen I think and you try to like convince yourself that the lukewarm is the right thing but most often than not it isn't you just have to have escape velocity faster that makes sense so if you were starting a brand new consumer startup today that had nothing to do with credit cards or lending what would your process be that kind of like how do you 
look for that elusive product market fit and really find something that you're, you're describing extreme product market fit that you know quickly whether you have it or not. What would you do? What would your process be? It has to come in from an internal like kind of viewpoint. It generally cannot come from like a research. I think research generally in a consumer product, people do incredibly good jobs at doing usability research. And like, I think that's the kind of stuff research is really helpful for and like validating your feedback, but not to like get the idea in the first place. That's something that we learned where you cannot rely on research to come up with ideas. I think that's very consulting. You have to just have the idea either through your own experiences or your own intuition or own gut or own upbringing. And then you just have to put forward that idea in the fastest and easiest form factor and get it validated quickly. So I think that's primarily it. I think I used to over-index on research in the early days. And I think research would have never led to Tesla's founding or Peloton's founding or even the iPhone. It just wouldn't have happened. So I think you have to have some intrinsic thing that you're chasing based on whatever you have learned in life or seeking. And then you just have to go do it in the fastest amount of time and then use research to validate it and iterate on it. I think research is immensely valuable for the latter. It's not valuable for the former. You cannot go and get the idea based on research. So I think that's how I would approach it today. That makes sense. And so talk about a little bit about X1 today. You know, you know, you got the cards in people's hands. I, it sounds like they're using it very actively. What are you guys thinking about today and where are you taking the product? Yeah, I think the business has matured significantly over the last year and a half. It ended up from being a product to a business. Today, uh, we do about $3 million in revenue every month. We have almost, I think, 35 employees. We have full-on mature functions of finance and risk and legal. So it has just become a proper scalable business and the market is really, really large. So I think where we are today, our biggest priorities are to just like grow in the most organic way possible because to this date, we don't do any paid marketing. It's still organic. It's all word of mouth, which is rare for a consumer product and rare for a consumer fintech product. So we want to just like continue to expand on that and serve as many consumers as possible because I think now we're operating at a really significant scale. I think in terms of annualized volume, we are close to a billion dollars, I think about $750 million in annualized volume, close to $40 million in annualized revenue. So the business is very different from a wait list with no consumers. Uh, and it just all happened, I would say, in the space of 16 to 18 months. So it just, yeah, it happened way faster than we had anticipated. So now I think we're, we're just kind of keeping up and like trying to just make sure that we can take full advantage of the opportunity, which is so large because millions of Americans still don't know about us. They still have a subpar credit card experience and we could do much better for them. So that's the goal. We just want to serve as many American consumers as possible. Yeah, that's amazing. I assumed we sort of skipped over, but I assumed along the way there, you also raised another funding round after the Series A. Yes, we raised a Series B in June of this year. Wesley Chan led the round, so that was a $25 million Series B. And that was another more validation that we're doing something unique, even in the fundraising climate that like, we had gone through over the spring and summer. We continue to just keep our head down and continue to grow. Interesting. So it sounds like, you know, just looking back over, you know, again, for future founders, the history of the fundraising was you raised your seed round on the Thrive Cash idea. It was working and you had that capital, which got you through the launch, the announcement of X1. You raised the Series A based on the strength of the announcement and the, and the consumer response. And then the Series B was after the card had shipped and was in people's hands and they were spending with it and loving it. Yeah, I think Series B was primarily based on numbers, just like revenue, growth rate, and then like the potential of the business. I think Series A was still like based on this demand without the product. 
seed round was for a completely different product. So those were the different like uh, funding stages for us. Is there advice, Deepak, you have or thoughts that you have just like on fundraising and how founders should approach fundraising kind of from the very beginning? In terms of what I personally saw, a couple things. So instead of trying to convince someone whose thesis doesn't match with you that like they should fund you, I think that's just a lost cause. It leads to like a lot of wasted time. I think the, the job of fundraising is not to convince someone. I think the job of fundraising is literally to find someone who sees the world similar to you see them. That's literally it, I think. And if you try to chase the former, I think it just leads to like a very long-winded process where you're extremely exhausted because you're trying to convince someone who doesn't materially believe in the thing that you are doing. The job gets much easier if you just find someone who sees the world similar to you see the world. Did you just learn that by experience or how did you figure that out? I would say the experience, especially after fundraising in the current climate in like June, I think you can talk to as many venture capitalists as possible and try and like uh, convince them why you're doing is different. And at the end of the day, I think they have a very particular thesis and like a viewpoint of how they see the world. This changes, I think, when you are, uh, I don't know, like a $10 billion company, and then that's a different kind of mindset. But until then, I think it's kind of a fool's errand to try to convince people who are not sold in your thesis to begin with. So I think for now, future fundraisers, I it's very like casual and easy because I never go pitch again. I just will like talk to the people and I understand what their thesis is about the industry that we're in, how they think about it. And very quickly, you just understand now that, okay, there's no way they will ever invest in your company. So you don't waste all this energy and diligence of weeks and weeks trying to convince them. I think that's the biggest thing that I've learned. Very interesting to find investors who see the world the way that you do, rather than trying to convince investors who don't see the world the way that you do that they should. Yeah, exactly. And I think that just never works out because you are trying to do all this diligence and they will have more questions and then they'll have more questions. And then you're spending weeks on diligence for someone who's like fundamentally not looks at the world that the way you look and eventually they will always pass if you try to do that. So Deepak, just wanted to wrap up today with a couple questions for you about things that you've learned in the past. What is the best piece of advice you've received and actually used? Okay, I'll give you the most non-Silicon Valley answer for this one. So in 2019, I was watching Dave Chappelle get the Mark Twain Prize. And I think he had this quote during his acceptance speech where he talked about uh, Miles Davis, who is this incredible jazz composer. And that quote like stuck with me for the last three years. And I wish someone would have told this to me earlier. So the quote goes as follows. It's, it was done by Miles Davis. I think he said that it took him years to learn how to play like himself. and being in Silicon Valley and like uh, being surrounded by these like incredible like personalities and people who try to do things in their own way, you try to like emulate them in some shape and form. You have all these success stories of people like Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, now Elon Musk. And I was fortunate enough to be at Twitter to get to work with people like you, like Jack Dorsey, Max Levchin, and everyone is so smart and just so inspiring that you try to kind of emulate yourself to fit how they think. But I think the right way, and it took me longer than I should have to realize that as you get older, you get better at these things. You just should like be yourself, I think, because there's no one path to success. Success is kind of an anti-pattern and people unnecessarily overfit. So you just have to learn how to be like yourself without trying to mold into other people's personalities. So I think that was it. That has been the best advice that somehow no one gave me. I wish they would have given me, but I think I have like uh, learned over the years that for me, it works really, really well. I love that. Great quote. What about books or resources that you'd recommend to founders who are, you know, where they are now is where you were four or five years ago, just getting started. 
So I think the things that have benefited me personally is this podcast called How I Built This, NPR podcast by Gyras. Yeah, it's incredible because you get to like hear from these incredibly unique personalities who are also different from like the Chuck E. Cheese founder to the 5R Energy founder to like 1800 God Junk to all the way from Brian Chesky and the Stripe founder. So it gives you like a huge like array of like different ways to succeed. So that was something where I found a lot of inspiration from. I love Zero to One as like a book for uh, as you're starting a company. But I think the best book for me over the last few years has been the founding story of Nike by the founder Phil Knight called Shoe Dog because I felt that I had a long and arduous journey to go through the pivot. But I think they did that for 20, 25 years. And like it was just this incredible story of how to build enduring values. Awesome. Deepak, thank you so much. This has been incredible. You know, just hearing your story of the original idea, the pivot, the path to success, and kind of some of these lessons that you've taken with you. And best of luck with the X1 card. And I can't wait for uh, X2 and X3. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for calling me here.